0: 6 is a collection of conversations held during the quarantine caused by the COVID-19 crisis that started for Europe in March 2020. In a time of social distancing and the importance of personal space, I started to wonder how we relate to this notion and the spaces we inhabit. From my room in Leipzig, Germany, I reached out to creatives all over the world to explore with them this idea of space and what it can mean, both personally and in their practice to hear their individual experiences within the given restrictions and if they discovered some new truths or awareness in them. Last but certainly not least, I spoke to author and composer Fabian Saul. He's also the editor-in-chief of Flaneur, a magazine exploring the complexity of a city. Each issue is centered on one single street in the world focusing on collaboration and interaction with the local community to generate its content.
1: People said, yeah, you should like stream it on YouTube, whatever. I was like, I'm not even comfortable with that. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: <laughs> no, I, I also
2: think that there's, uh, I feel it's a great time for audio formats, actually, because I feel like this whole like, streaming and zooming in live streams it's a bit uh it's a bit much at the moment it's a lot there but uh, yeah. anyway maybe that's really part of the conversation so
1: <laughs> yeah no, it's true like lots of stimulants also very weird to have these yeah interactions like on a flat screen i always feel a bit weird like after a meeting or something and then you close it and you suddenly realize you've been alone in the same room and you know
2: there's this moment when you uh when the conversation ends
1: Mm
2: -hmm. and uh but obviously not everyone is logging out at the same time so there's this like loneliness of few (laughs) like seconds afterwards where everyone is just kind of staring into the void or staring at themselves and you can kind of see everyone going like
1: yeah and uh where to end the meeting and not seeing it (laughs) yeah yeah.
2: oh yeah they're frozen with their smiles because they've been waving and but then they're just like
1: it brings yeah. a lot of awkwardness with it a bit as well yeah
2: and it's quite exhausting as well i think the the, the concentration you you need to
3: definitely
1: to have
2: there's because there's no there's no downtime on on these kind of streams you know i mean if yeah. we would be sitting like in a cafe right now i think we would have like some sort of like other interactions and it would be like oh yeah. let's order something and you go out and maybe someone has a yeah. cigarette or whatever exactly. like it's oh. all these like yeah it's,
1: there's it's a
2: certain choreography that it doesn't happen anymore because you kind of just. Um, it's, it's very one-on-one, you know, in a way. Right?
1: Yeah, that's true, because like I for my school, I've have been having these class meetings online as well, and I um, was talking with a professor of mine about how it would, how it was so weird that normally if you're in a group, you kind of, when you're talking or looking around and you have these kind of focus moments on like individual persons, when it's on a screen like everyone is looking at you at the same time in a way and it's you're looking at everyone so it's such a like it's it's crazy how um yeah like the confrontation is so intense and also with yourself you always on every device have like this little video that of yourself so if you're in an interaction with someone else you're constantly like looking at yourself in a way even if you don't want to and it's so weird yeah and
2: people do like this uh, stuff with their hair and so on. Constantly checking. But they, I mean, uh, I also think there's some, something, I mean, you know, to reach a level of where you are allowing certain forms of silence between each other, which is probably the goal of uh, any conversation, because I feel that's the moment when you create some sort of intimacy and you know that from people that you feel comfortable with, you actually, can be in silence without it being awkward without it being uh, a lack of something but mm-hmm. it's actually an, an an agreement that is made in that moment that is much stronger than than you know and i feel like that's uh that's hard to reach mm-hmm. <laughs> in, a, in a call like that because it's normally when there's silence there is the the interface issue that someone thinks mm-hmm. that someone froze uh that there's an internet connection it, it immediately is Play to the technical. Hello, do you hear me? Excuse. am I still on? Is this still on? Like,
3: uh, yes. if you don't
2: move, you don't say anything. It's not part of the protocol. It's definitely like some sort of glitch. that um,
1: mm-hmm.
2: creates. But anyway, yeah.
1: But um, maybe as a real start, could you um, give a little bit of an introduction about yourself and also what your position is at Flaner Magazine.
2: Yes, so I'm the editor of uh, Flaneur Magazine. Um, I share that position with uh, Gashina Gabelmann. Mm -hmm. And we are a magazine that is uh, dealing with different street in the world for every issue. Um, We started seven years ago in Berlin, and since then have been kind of traveling um, from Berlin to Leipzig, to Montreal, to Mm -hmm. Rome, Athens, Moscow, Sao Paulo, and recently to Taipei. Um, It's a collaborative project, which already introduces a bit of my um, um practice i um, i assume um we go to these places not in, with the idea of writing ab- about them or researching on them but actually to create a platform where we are able to work with others mm-hmm. and work into in an interdisciplinary way mm-hmm. so flaneur is uh, a literary publication in a way because the narratives we deal with are uh, coming from a literary angle, is a is a frac- fr- we call the fragments of the street. So it's a juxtaposition of many different perspectives on the same place uh, through different angles, through um, often unvoiced uh, layers. Uh, the idea is to to start with one street in order to not tell the the grand narrative, the big story, the story that might already be formed by saying words like Moscow or Russia, or by saying words like. Brazil or Sao Paulo, but the, uh, to, to to not fall into that kind of um, uh, trap of following these grand narratives. So part of that is also going to the place and, and working with the place. So we start by walking, which the name of our magazine suggests, and we form networks that then are able to to create a multi perspective issue. Um, mm-hmm. And that that kind of technique, I would say, is in, in some ways something that connects the different fields of my work as well. so I'm also a writer
0: mm-hmm. uh, and I'm
2: also a composer, uh, and I sometimes appear in these functions within Influner as well. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it is more of a curating role uh, in a way, but uh, often it also is us becoming uh, collaborators in a certain contribution or project
1: and how do you actually gain? Access to the surroundings because you say you work in one street, which is um most of the times I think uh, in a different country in a like new city, how do you find your way in let's so to speak
3: in
2: general we could say that in the beginning there's not a not a strong um, network but only a few uh, hints or starting points uh certain people that maybe initially were those that invited us because i feel the 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 constellation that you feel kind of invited to a place is always um definitely um, a premise of actually uh, making an issue so you have to feel invited to a place you arrive at a place and from there on you you basically start spending we spent a couple of months in this place so we 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 take a lot of time to actually just meet with people and the general idea of that access first of all is that it's um the idea is to create a platform so it is not necessary for us to tell the story but it in some issues our own voice is uh is is very like um, uh, it's one of many i would say sometimes it's it's a bit stronger sometimes a bit less it depends on the constellation but the the most important thing about the access for me is that the, the, the conversations, the meetings, the getting to know the place is not happening uh, with an intention of being productive in all times. So it's important. You meet in the beginning, you, you listen, you hear stories again and again from different angles. Uh, You kind of, kind of try to connect the dots, but you're also trying to embrace the, the, um, the multitude of narratives that always create some sort of um and they they not always uh, add up you know they don't always agree with each other obviously mm-hmm. and i think to leave in these um, um i can't come up with the right word here um contradictions that's the word mm-hmm. to leave to embrace these contradictions is one important thing but also then you meet people for a couple of months you maybe become friends or maybe don't you sometimes spend a lot of time and absolutely nothing comes out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is a very important thing to embrace because we are very much um, trained to produce. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think there's something um, extremely uh, difficult, especially in, 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 a, in a collaborative project and in a, working with a team mm-hmm. to allow for something to not be productive, to mm-hmm. allow, Uh, these things to maybe not go anywhere to also uh, allow people to get involved in a process without necessarily being comfortable with being published some people want to tell stories want to share want to experience and uh, walk a place together and work in a place together but not not everyone wants to actually um be -hmm. published you know (laughs) some do some want to work on their own some don't want to have any of these kind of collaborative ones Some just want to um, we don't hear from them for a couple of months and then they come back with something amazing. And that is something that happens because they have the space and time to develop that thought. Mm-hmm. So, in general, we don't know much in the beginning and we can't predict what the issue is going to be like. We can't predict what these meetings are going to lead to. But it is only when the material kind of manifests after a couple of months that we ourselves are in a position of having somewhat of an overview of what is happening. Mm-hmm. So if you want to if you create that overview too early on in the process uh you you are centralizing the discourse mm-hmm. you would intervene you would intervene in the in in this uh, with a, that that would be a power move you know mm-hmm. if we would be the ones to always have the overview but the others don't which is normally the case with journalistic production you would research quite well you would kind of know it, Each of these characters you're going to meet stands for. You have maybe questions. You have maybe certain uh, answers you want to get. Maybe you already know the answers you want to get, but you just need someone to say them. So you're kind of just like kind of confirming something you already, like, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that's always the case. Of course, there's great investigative uh, journalism that does, that does have space for finding stuff that we don't know Mm -hmm. in the beginning of the process. But the majority of journalistic practice is, is, um, is uh, a gap that needs to be filled in a flat plan Mm -hmm. that is based on a formula that is already set in the beginning of the process. Mm -hmm. So that flat plan of a magazine, that flat plan, if we see the magazine as a vessel for for something to to hold something together, uh, I think juxtaposing the elements and let them speak how they correspond is something fundamentally different from knowing the structure of that vessel Mm -hmm. and filling the gaps within it. That uh, is for me the difference between a literary and a journalistic practice because, in the literary practice, we don't know beforehand and we will maybe never know. And there's no point in which we can say we have exhausted the place, to to use a term of Perec's piece, you know, play attempt at exhausting a place in Paris, which I feel like is a very good term because that's a that that uh, element and which would maybe be associated with travel journalism or something where there's an idea of someone becoming an expert of the place and knowing the place inside out, they would say like their own pocket or there's a saying in German, you know, mm-hmm. that's not the idea. Like I'm not an expert for that place. And that's not the aim at like, uh, you know, and the, when, when we work in, with a place, of course, we're looking for for connections to other places. Of course there's, we live in a globalized world and we need to f- kind of see how these global conditions play out in local contexts for example we do need that conversation we need to have conversations that are paying attention to the local but are not oblivious to the global uh, conditions and uh, colonial conditions etc that we live in so um one way to to do that is to go deep enough and um that takes time
1: so it's very much also about surprising or letting yourself be surprised as the researchers, like kind of in the position, and also then the interaction of you with the local community and environment.
2: Yes, that's super important. I mean, you you saw the Sao Paulo issue. You said um, all of the contributors are um, people based in Sao Paulo, and having very different connections. You know, some that mm. just just recently arrived there, some that lived there their entire life, mm. some that maybe returned to the place, but they. And they all have a very strong connection with that place. And uh, it's not us telling a story of Sao Paulo or anything like that.
3: Mm
1: -hmm. No, I think that's a very beautiful idea because, like you say, sometimes when you hear the name of a city, you can kind of create an image in your mind. But um, just like lots of things in life, um, nothing is one-sided. And the city exists out of so many districts. And each district has its own personality in a way. So um, yeah, it's, it's kind of the accumulation of everything that shapes the whole.
2: Exactly. And I think it's also becoming aware of the, 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 the surround. I mean, that's, a, that's maybe a whole different conversation, but becoming aware of how uh, our built environment shapes the narratives that we live through and the narratives that we don't reflect upon. Because I think one fundamental um, function of architecture is to naturalize certain ideas about reality that mm-hmm. we then all share because we feel it's inevitable because it is built environment. That's not an idea. That's not a concept. That's something very manifest.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, the, the outline of a city, the ways you can walk through it or can't walk through it. That is a uh, manifestation of a certain power structure
3: mm-hmm. that
2: we always try to trace in language and we try, try to trace in politics and narratives and how we speak with each other and how media functions and how, Economy functions, and a lot of that is pretty abstract. And architecture, in that sense, is something very concrete. Uh, The actual word "concrete" (laughs) uh, might (laughs) give us that hint. And uh, nevertheless, nevertheless, something that is coming with an extremely potent um, uh, fictional quality. Mm -hmm. So that idea that uh, just because it is manifest, that doesn't mean it is. It is inevitable. It doesn't mean it is n- a natural condition that we're supposed to live in. There is an idea that that reality is a fictional, uh, fiction-based and many ideas are layered up. Of course, there's not just one. I'm not, st- I'm not talking about that one invisible power that has shaped that place. The the truth is that there is a multitude of, uh, uh, um, of uh, different pa- layers of power that have led to that condition. But it is o- almost uh, always, almost always that's what i would say almost always a uh, um also an articulation of power mm. because architecture is a, a i would see as a as a part of the arts where the artist cannot function without um at least the second person who is mm. usually the investor or the the builder in the sense of providing the political and economical um, framework in which a building can actually build because, be built because we know a lot of the re, more resistant architecture is actually architecture that was never executed it 's architecture that we know from paper but we don 't know from walking in so a lot of the uh, critical architecture is a is a history of publishing' is
3: mm-hmm. a
2: history of ideas the history we see out when we look out of the window is it's that that actually became manifest and and that that can always always has to you know and, and, uh, turn our attention to that question of uh, of the power structure and by that i mean uh, also all of its uh, all of its uh, racist and sexist and uh, uh, anti-semitic and <laughs> Colonial implication, et cetera, et cetera, you name it. But it is, there, these are usually, these places are built on strategies of exclusion rather than inclusion mm. and narratives, especially the ones we live under, which are still fundamentally nationalistic because that's the the, the time of nation building, which I don't mean as synonymous with nat- nationalism, but it is uh, in, in some way uh, has happened in a certain uh, time where, where most of the the, the countries we live and originate from. So these narratives are still very strong, and, and nationalist narratives are uh, all based on different forms, different strategies of exclusion rather than inclusion. So mm. that's something that's something hard to like, uh, difficult to ignore when working with. And I'm not sure how that relates to what you.
1: No, I find it very interesting.
2: A bit of a tangent here.
1: No. Yeah. Also, I think it's really interesting you mention the kind of. Um, Friction between exclusion and inclusion in relation to architecture because our homes or the buildings we live in should be kind of um, keeping us safe and uh, making us feel safe, while maybe these kind of um, buildings or structures where they originate from are um, more exclusive than actually protecting us in a way.
2: I think one very maybe fundamental uh, thought in especially living in cities um, that have a certain like um, older um, uh, st- building structure um, that often is juxtaposed with stuff that hasn't been recently built. But I mean mm-hmm. that most of the buildings we live in are not meant for us. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure in which kind of building you are sitting right now, but i'm definitely sitting in a building that uh, that uh, has that does not mean me that has not been built for me that i have no i uh, have a hard time um tracing back to what the intent behind building that building was how the who the people that actually lived here once uh, were uh, what are the, the, the different lives that have been lived in, inside here
3: mm-hmm. and
2: there of course i can i can acquire some of that knowledge and we can trace back some of that but first of all, it has not been built for, for me in, in that way. It does not mean me if, if there is also this communicative mm-hmm. part in architecture where these things also signify something. Mm-hmm. And I do think that that's important to understand because, of course, with the, our idea of, um, uh, I, m- I mean, that, that idea of home you were just talking about, for example, as some, um, um, complicated uh pretty abstract concept when you think Mm -hmm. about that for example what i have installed here is largely projection onto many other layers of Mm -hmm. whatever i i call my home at the moment And i think it becomes um more evident that that the difficulty of that uh when when you look at all the the people that have that live in under conditions where they're not even allowed to build that kind of comfort and home Mm -hmm. uh, and the the amount of um violence that goes into actually not um, providing homes for people and the the, the, the multitude of strategies of, um, uh, well, mostly actually genocide strategies that have been shaping the, the 20th century where uh, we have a, a tremendous amount of uh, people that have never been granted the rights even to build that kind of home. And that is a history that now seems... Uh, you could think on first hand. Well, that does that probably doesn't that doesn't apply for the majority of the people, or something like that. I think a lot of people live under this idea that that that's a very extreme, extreme kind of stories of uh, of violence and, and, and hate and genocide and stuff that does not apply to like the majority of people. But it's absolutely not the case because we actually live in uh, places and cities that have been. Uh, drastically shaped by this concept, and I, I live uh, just one street um, away from what used to be called the, the, the Jewish Quarter of Berlin and, 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 and still is to some extent, but also um, is, uh, uh, is not the, the, that community that built that part of the city is not there anymore.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And, um, and that's just like to give one idea to the question of who has lived in these homes, Mm-hmm. Um, how is it? You know, what what is that kind of vacant space I'm basically occupying with my stuff at the moment? Um, the that that connection to these practices um, of, of, of violence is it's usually much more closer to to our realities than we try to conceptualize them. Because they are not the not necessarily the exception.
1: Mm. And how have you been experiencing your home and your surroundings with the quarantine and not being allowed to leave that place?
2: Um, <clears throat> well, first of all, I—I I mean, we didn't have a proper lockdown in uh, Berlin, um, mm. and I think in, in most parts uh, of Germany. Mm. Uh, so i think that that is definitely one of the reasons why it was not as extreme as if, for example in places where you would only be allowed to leave your home once a week or twice a week but there was a you know i was still able to go outside mm-hmm. throughout this time then of course uh, i am in a very privileged situation in the in the way that uh, a lot of my work uh, evolves around my uh, this working space that i have at home so it's uh, the, this con- this idea of home office was not uh, completely new to me, mm-hmm. and it was also, uh, although there were although uh, another part of my life, as we just talked about, is connected to to meeting people, to to actually do um, events together, to travel, to to meet others. Uh, that whole part obviously didn't happen, but there it was still relatively easy for me to adapt to the situation, and it's an extremely mm-hmm. privileged. Uh, uh, position to be in uh, there's many uh, jobs as we know that can't do home office and many homes that doesn't that don't provide that sort of relative uh, silence and and uh, and also a place without harm uh, that uh, that that this place for me is um for me the mo- more like the more immediate reaction when it started in march that the uh, this let's say emergency uh state was uh, declared mm-hmm. um was that i found all these things that i actually just started to talk about where these concept the, the the fictional uh, capacity of our realities our mm-hmm. shared plan of the things we would commonly agree on that they are quite manifest and inevitable that they became much more uh, apparent
3: mm-hmm.
2: and interestingly enough i think uh, these words unreal surreal uh, something feel, feels kind of uh, off, you know? It's like a glitch in reality. Something is happening that we can't... I heard that a lot around uh, me, like my friends and people that I talk to around the, the world. Actually, there, there, there was this sensation of
3: mm-hmm.
2: there's something unreal about them. it. Almost like we can't really synchronize ourselves with that time and space immediately because it feels like, you not. oh, wow, how are you... And I think they can be very triggering for many people that have uh, that have a hard time with them. these kind of you know to to connect with the reality. Um, on the other hand, I found it quite interesting that that happened at the same time, also the the injustices and the inequalities that our societies basically run upon uh, the different forms of uh, of uh, um, oppression. Uh, became much more uh, visible as well uh, to to a much larger audience in a way I think uh, all of a sudden people started thinking about uh, certain conditions of uh, for example housing like what's much more also the, the the jobs that a society actually relies upon like people working in the supermarket people working in the hospital was always like mentioned a lot but there are many more like people doing the delivery people actually putting the labor in the other people can sit at home and,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and don't have to leave so much, you know? I mean, it's still, uh, there was, the supply chains were largely intact. There was no, there was uh, the only, the, the only um, kind of lack of any goods were created by people uh, being in a position to buy too much at, one, at once, but there was never an actual supply chain problem, which means there must be a lot of people and labor and, behind that, keeping that system intact. And I think it was much more visible all of a sudden. I think none of, most of these uh, very uh, precarious conditions and injustices have not been created by this crisis in any way. They've been there before. All of a sudden, a kind of mainstream audience became aware of them. I think there's there's a, a more critical audience and obviously those people that are, on a daily basis, affected by these injustices, that for them, it was not,
3: not news,
2: Mm. but it seemed to be all of a sudden make it to the, to the, to the eight o'clock news, you know, Mm. and that, that combined with that sensation of unrealness, I found quite striking because there was something about that. I I feel there is a connection between these two Mm. things, between uh, a, a kind of collective agreeing upon a certain form of reality we all agree and we live in and at the same time that kind of conception of collectiveness being also oppressive
3: yeah. and
2: that kind of I felt that there was a strong connection actually between these two these mm-hmm. two sensations and um, that was what I got interested in I did I did a little bit of a I did a little radio uh, um, um, series on on different views out of the window for deutschland radio kultur and the german public radio Mm
3: -hmm.
2: and uh, as a kind of reaction to that because i felt like it was a good time to to talk about like more like how can this these different perspectives on the city and looking out of the window Mm -hmm. actually lead us to more critical thinking rather than just sharing You know there's another content that is shared where actually people just uh just show their their cool homes and their wealth and obviously and Mm -hmm. there's a there was a there was also a celebrity um a shift in kind of people like consuming celebrity culture in the way that of also these uh, injustices and massive gaps between the, the the wealth of the audience and those that are yeah. Uh, the, 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 the economic elites became much more evident because obvi- obviously they were streaming from their homes and people were like oh that's how they live <laughs> uh, and that that I think was a bit of a reality check for for many as well
3: mm-hmm. and made
2: it much harder again to consume that without being critical about it I felt yeah. like it is it was you know when you have these and how ignorant a lot of this a lot of this content is towards realities of people so yeah. um yeah and there's then there's this way of you know the, there's a lot of corona diaries and people like oh the quarantine the quarantine. we're going to like everyone all of a sudden there's a narrative of people like oh there's so much time we're we going to do with my time and everyone starts baking bread or something <laughs> but i felt like there was also such a very niche narration of Mm. the conditions that people are under at the moment i mean it's a pandemic it's like people actually being um directly and affected Uh, a lot of people living under extremely precarious conditions and i don't think people having too much time on their hands and having to find new hobbies is the actual problem here Mm. um mental health issues obviously can be when it is about you know just being and i think it's we don't shouldn't play one like out against the other but i felt we have to apply some critical thinking in this situation otherwise uh, mm-hmm. we will just commodify the situation into another mm-hmm. like kind of instagram story of our beautiful cool items that we
1: yeah.
2: purchased and put on display
1: yeah i think it's a really interesting image to think about that we're having this layer stripped away and having all these um situations and injustices and problems in the system like floating on top and seeing this feels surreal to us as if that's the fake thing and where before when we kind of believed in this beautiful dream that felt real to us I think that's a really interesting um, viewpoint on the whole thing because I had never thought about it I thought like okay yeah we're all kind of in a shock Mode because it's like a thing nobody ever experienced it. I think it's a very interesting thing to think that being hit by reality feels foreign to us. Yeah, (laughs) I
3: I think
2: that's absolutely yeah. That's a that's a good way to put it. And I think the other thing that is in that what you just said is that then the next question is when when you just said we and you said us, Mm -hmm. what is that conception actually? Because uh, already we we see. That uh, the same way as I was talking about this uh, collective agreement on certain evident things in our built environment, mm. that's a we and a us. That is definitely built on exclusion because apparently it was not able to hold the multitude of realities that people live under. Otherwise, we wouldn't so we wouldn't be so shocked by actually seeing these realities because they were they were realities. Yeah. Uh, for. Uh, before this uh, pandemic, made them maybe more visible,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and I mean that that visibility obviously is also a matter of gatekeeping in the news and what are the narratives that we actually go for, etc. So it's like, I mean, that's very complex. The way that that it's also now then was kind of maybe talked about more, but I also wouldn't count on that. We should we should think of that as an actual fundamental critical thinking because,
3: mm-hmm.
2: in the end, the reactions that were applied so far were not reactions that would be fundamentally uh shifting anything in the system. I mean, you know, the uh the, the way that these narratives also disappear now is very fast, I feel like, with the openings. I feel like it's already like the the back to business vibe, the nervousness of the system, the 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 pace that has been increased again, uh the ignorance towards each other. It's been I uh <laughs> It almost feels like those those surreal days we are now talking about in in, in late March, uh, mid March to late March, yeah. uh, already are quite far away now.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, in another conversation, someone actually mentioned that um, how quick humanity kind of loses its memory of. I was going to ask you if you had like any insights or like experience that made you change your. Thats because of it, because I think a lot of people experience it, but after like what we talked about now, maybe it's also a bit um, naive or like it's a very nice and beautiful thought to think that we kind of have these insights, and then afterwards we will shift the whole thing while now we're kind of in this moment where things are shifting back to more normal, and you see how quickly we actually forget. Um, All the things we experienced in the beginning of like this shock and stuff like that.
2: Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it, and I think that lack of memory, uh, Mm -hmm. both short and long term, is part of the problem. And I'm I'm absolutely uh, I I don't think that this uh, if we if we apply that idea of a shock that that something like a global pandemic can can you know give a lot of people. And I think to to believe that that would fundamentally now shift and change their um, positions i would be very skeptical that that is happening or has happened um but of course that's the that's the key question right what kind of what kind of uh shockwaves does it need to actually then systemically change uh, something and i feel um let's say if you look at the political reply it was definitely there was an urgency that was 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 created but there was never like an actual systemic discourse put on the table the whole idea was it's an emergency state and we have to overcome the emergency state and the term that everyone would apply was we have to find a back a way back to normality Like Mm -hmm. normalcy etc. So that's the idea, and the comparison with wartime, which a lot of uh, governments also did, also shows how these emergency states can be very quickly exploited uh, for you know for agendas that were already uh, happening Mm -hmm. beforehand. If we look at um, the well, there you can find many examples from uh, Bolsonaro's policies in Brazil to Macron's policies in France to Uh, also the conservative uh, government after all in Germany that although they reacted I think very fast and also with a certain uh, rhetoric of trying to include many realities in that kind of reply uh, and a little less of the wartime narrative that we could see in other governments Mm -hmm. still at the end of the day it was uh, it was a it was a very conservative reaction and it's Mm -hmm. an idea of you know, and it, and I think the 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 actual sad part is that I feel like the only the only kind of uh, critical approach that gets traction on on uh, media coverage is the one that is not uh, actual critical thinking, but uh, very. Um, or some, something that is mistaken for almost like critical thinking because it is something that that is applied with the the aggression and with the extremely uh dangerous narratives of antisemitism etc where there is people on the street shouting about the the the, the global uh elites uh conspiracy of bill gates etc these kind of things that we could we could uh mistake for actual critical approaches i don't think that's 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 a critical approach at all and i think that's that's a bit when you look at that kind of mainstream coverage that's maybe that there was maybe a short um a short time where it felt it was possible Mm. you know there were a lot of like uh, and you could see like certain notorious neo-Marxists for example getting their hopes up for general income and all these things very quickly and I always thought wow that wouldn't I wouldn't um, uh, I wouldn't be too too hopeful about these kind of things at the same time also uh, after all the general reaction was a protectionist a nationalist and sometimes fascist reaction so I wouldn't say that that Crisis has led to anything of a very hopeful reaction on the world, not at all. Mm-hmm. The opposite is true, and so in that sense, now uh, this this short window where it felt it was still possible to have a more mainstream critical conversation now is overshadowed by this by this kind of conspiracy uh, bullshit, and uh, and gets uh, too much coverage, if you ask me. Because that's you know it's it's something feeding itself as a narrative. I mean, these, this kind mm-hmm. of narrative, this kind of um, uh, very aggressive rhetoric, only works if it's kind of fed the entire time with this, mm-hmm. some sort of idea of scandal and urgency, and and also the the the. the um, the idea of that there could be some sort of riots or some sort of violence or something mm-hmm. coming from that side. I mean, I, I think there's lots of things we, sh- we, we, we could be critical about I just don't think that that's the... I think it's a misunderstanding if people mm-hmm. think, no these are the, the ones being critical of the situation.
1: Yeah, it takes the focus away of what's actually really um, yeah. the center of it all in a way.
2: Absolutely, and I also, yeah, and... Um, all these things we just talked about before about these things they yeah they're then kind of off the table because then people um uh yeah that seems to be in the narrative that excites the media also more to to cover this kind of uh you know out, outrage and uh mm. yeah because the other the the, the actual critic think is less um it's less provocative uh, in, in 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 its in its uh, outer appearance. It is much more <laughs> provocative in its actual core of critical thinking. But it is less, you know, uh,
1: less sensational. Produces,
2: yeah, it produces less of a uh, image to use for that purpose. Yeah.
1: And would you then say that maybe your practice, for example, if we would look at the work you do with Flâneur magazine, you could, if I would describe it, it would be kind of seeing and exploring the space in a new way through this these very individual and personal interactions but would you then maybe more describe it as seeing it in a real way and kind of trying to get to the core of what's really happening instead of the like this fictional image we believe in
2: well i think I don't think it's an invest because now it sounds like it could be like an investigative project trying to uncover the truth, uh, which I, you know, just like, I don't, th- I don't think that's the case. I also don't think it is possible to show a reality that is like the, the idea is when, when I, when I'm talking about the fictional capacity of, uh, of reality, I don't think it is possible not to have that. I think we are. Fundamentally, the way that that our relationship with reality is moderated is through concepts of uh, of fiction, uh, through concepts of narrative, narrative storytelling, etc. So I don't think it is possible, or it is the aim here to to insinuate that there could be an actual reality or something like a real life, and the other one is like that. Yeah, that that's not what I mean. But I think if you if you get if you are aware of that fictional capacity of our built environment you do understand that that storytelling has um, usually a center and that that represents certain narratives and does not represent others. So the only conclusion from that can be to open up for a multitude of realities, to go back to what I said in the beginning, to actually be able to live also with the contra- contradictions in mm. those uh, storylines. And I think that is, um, that is necessary to then get closer to, um, to the conditions that people actually live on, to, to represent lives how they are lived, and in their, mm. in their multitude of like so to not to not exclude uh, and and to not to not um, create narratives that actually are violent, mm. because we are living with narratives that are essentially violent narratives. They are ex executing violence and i think that's the it, it does not mean to take away from the fictional potential because that's i would say then that's a conversation about the human way of uh, of of creating relationship with the world and i think in that
3: mm-hmm. we
2: are beings that rely on fiction heavily mm-hmm. and i think that's a that's more like than a maybe uh Another conversation, But I think that, so I wouldn't take that away. I wouldn't say that there is, that's the, 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 there's an idea of like, that's not, that's not real. And that is real. But I think it is in that fictional capacity, we need to find, uh, we can only find ways of you know, multi-perspective narrating. And that also shouldn't be misunderstood as something where there are no facts or where there are no, you know, because you could easily think, oh, well, if everyone is like kind of telling their reality, then there's no,
3: Mm-hmm.
2: But but as in a story, and even if you have a, um, um you know, in any complex story, it, there is different angles to it, mm-hmm. and these angles need to be heard to actually get a the fuller picture or to get closer to a picture of that thing that happened. And also, I don't think that because Trono is a literary project, and there is a literary capacity in these kind of stories that revolve revolve around the place,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and so, we are, we are in that field of literature. We're not a journalistic project trying to uncover the truth about Três de Mayo and Sao Paulo. But I think there is another capacity, and that's, like a, that's a poetic work,
3: mm-hmm. not
2: an, an explicit political work. And that, that poetic work implicitly also has a political realm because we're dealing with public spaces and what bodies in public spaces experienced. Of course, mm-hmm. that is highly political, but I would say that's implicitly political and it does not is not as in like an investigative uh, journalistic project, which I would say maybe has an aim to be explicitly political. And, and, and that, that's the difference. We are in a different kind of register of, Mm -hmm. of dealing with that place. And I don't think we have to basically, we, we, we have to play out the one register against the other or because we need all of them. And of course I am very thankful for good um, investigative and uh, journalism that go, you know, that, that's, that's one side of the story, but there is uh, when we talk about narration, there is a poetic dimension to it, and a complexity to it which can be which we can't mm. uh, which we can't uh, grasp in any other way as in artistic production and literary production. And in that realm, that is essentially our realm of speechlessness. So that's the difference when we're speaking about arts. If we're speaking about visual arts, speaking about film, we're speaking about uh, literature on all these parts of you know, we are actually coming from a point of not having speech, and mm-hmm. that's the difference to that's why whatever becomes apparent there is it's implicit and not explicit mm-hmm. because I don't believe that any of these uh contributions is able to to grasp the whole thing and but that's the that's the beauty of it you know mm-hmm. and uh, in in a way of course you you have um and this this magazine that says. Uh, Trige de Mayo, Sao Paulo, in your case, uh, the one that you that you had. And and then you open the magazine and you maybe saw the concept and the, fir- the last line of our concept is actually this could be Trige de Mayo. And there's this this also <laughs> dissonance with, on the one hand, you, you know, it's a magazine, it's like Trige de Mayo. But mm. also to say that's not a finished project. That's not like, here's everything you need to know about, you know, these kind of, that for me... <laughs> again that's that's not possible because it it's it is it, much it, it, the position of storytelling in that sense is much weaker and but I don't mean weak in the sense of like oh they they couldn't get a better story no I mean that it is not trying to execute power it's not trying to execute violence by overshadowing other narratives but actually just juxtapose narratives and that is a more quiet register but it doesn't mean that it's it can actually be very powerful but it is it is a different uh just trying to explain that it's not the one or the other or that i think it's also not necessary necessarily the idea to mm. to to uncover the truth you know but it's more like diversifying the narratives and mm. actually allowing that speechlessness and also that contradiction in storytelling to unfold fully and see what happens. The same way as I said, we can't know in the beginning. It means you need to juxtapose, and in between these lines, something you know will appear. You don't know yet, and that's that's where you need to uh, uh, what you need to pay attention to.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe already in just like this awareness of there is no one objective truth and all these kind of things around it. And if you already are aware of it and kind of state that as a starting point, then it becomes already way more honest because you are kind of admitting your weakness. Like you will never be able to show the whole thing, but in doing that, you kind of already touch a little bit on it.
2: Yeah. And then it's at that point, then, uh, really also about inviting, uh, then it's uh, then the conclusion can be to create that platform and invite different voices which mm. i would say and that's the idea that's the vessel of a magazine you know the magazine so that's the that's why i think a, 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 a like a format like a magazine can maybe be one one of probably many formats we could think of that can hold this kind mm-hmm. of multitude of voices then
1: mm-hmm. how did you actually decide to start the project
2: well, I mean, it started as a collaboration between a bunch of people that are still the core team of uh, our project uh, uh, eight years later, which
3: I think it's quite uh, quite
2: astonishing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, so it's our publisher Ricarda Messner and then Kashina Gaberman and me um, doing the editorial work, and then Johannes uh, and Conrad and Michelle Phillips who are uh, running a design studio called Studio Kiko, mm-hmm. and so that. That was the initial team, and they, we all well came from different disciplines, and all had like kind of mo- multiple disciplines in our work. But the very initial thought for creating a magazine on one street came from Ricarda, who at that time was kind of revisiting actually streets from her childhood that she hasn't she hadn't uh, after returning to Berlin. She hadn't looked at them in in the way that you look at a street when you return to a place because mm-hmm. it becomes a kind of there's a sort of twist that could happen in between and that I think in her case happened and so uh, for for us that was interesting as well because it was a street that uh, to Christina and me was a street we never went to so uh, Berlin structurally being a place that actually consists of many cities mm-hmm. uh, that, that create one, one bigger city uh, it was also the opportunity to with a you know travel with the S-Bahn uh, within your own city and try to find, Find another uh, angle from another um, neighborhood and uh, and I think that that idea to have one person, the team that kind of returns to the place of a childhood and then having others that actually come to it with the curiosity of seeing a place that you you haven't seen before um, that constellation was really the starting point of honor and we, we we did that for a couple of months. And actually then only came up with the the name and all the other things so it was really trying to summarize or not summarize but trying to find a word for the what we're doing there and we always i mean we're aware that the the name flannura is um, uh, uh, technically the name for the for could could um you could think of like the character like a literary character the flannura but Fazza was always more about the the technique flannering. Um mm. It was more about that from the beginning, and um, yeah, that's that's how it all started in Berlin. And then we just and we went to Leipzig next, and uh, and then it's it's a very in, it's a collective project. It's a it's a very intuitive collective decision. Also, the next moves and stuff. It was never based on any business plan or a master plan or you know we had no idea uh what the next move would be and in, in a way it's still like that and i think that is the way that this project also is that's the reason why the project is still alive i think it's because mm-hmm. it has the it always reserves that flexibility of living to a certain extent together in this in the realm of the unknown and uh, and i think that actually drives the project uh, funny enough to not to not have these <laughs> cons- because that's it's a, in a way it's also a project that i think if you really think it through and if you really get opinions on it in the beginning i'd say most people say nah don't do it <laughs>
1: <laughs> most of the time those are the best ideas
2: yeah because you know what i mean like if you actually think about it if you go like um yeah this idea you know it's like those uh, street and uh, <laughs> might go somewhere else and then buy people like about a street and then it's like here you we know, going i don't know it's not you know and then oh how are you gonna finance that how are you gonna actually print that is actually anyone gonna read that and stuff so i think you can't go i mean that again at you know is obviously coming from a certain point of privilege that you have to also have the time and you have to have um the, the capacity to do that, um, in a way, also led to a certain way of living our lives, I would say. I mean, it's not, uh, it's, it's an independent project, it is, always has been and still is, uh, which means that it's not a project to, that we make uh, money with, it's a, a project that's trying to sustain itself, Mm-hmm. Um, so that also is, is in those times, that, and that's a lot of time in the year that we dedicate to the project. Of course, also, then uh, you know, uh, not coming. I mean, you have to be willing to dedicate your time to a project that is maybe covering your costs, but you also don't make any money from it. So it's not, it's also in a way. I think that was part of the reason why we also um, why we also were eager to try this out was also a, a way to work together and a way to live together to mm-hmm. base your work around meeting other people learn from others listen uh, travel in a, in, a, in a in a quite conscious way and uh, and just dedicate your time to these kind of collaborations rather than um, figuring it all figuring it all out beforehand so mm-hmm.
1: And have your experiences of making the magazine changed or shown you new ways of how to navigate the space?
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've, um, yeah, always tried to, you know, spend enough time in one place to actually be able to, to get to know the place, like get to know people that would give me the I mean, the the question for me was always like, um, is there a way to engage with a place that is, that is sustainable beyond the production of the magazine? Is there a structure in which you can do a project together, but that actually that seems to be the goal, but the actual goal is to find a way to be in touch uh, beyond that. So that, that is something I think that also leads back to the thing that we talked about when the, the intention of the project, you know? And so once you have that idea, I think you navigate quite differently because in a way uh, your engagement with the place is is very different from actually the, the product you're doing together, because in the end there's a magazine it's being printed, it's being released and all these things. But I would say that in all of the places we have visited, that there is still a connection and there's still the idea of returning and that for me is the even the more important question so in that moment you engage yourself in a different way and of course that sometimes it's also happening or not happening i mean it's like uh you can't you can't predict that you can't always and, and there's also no no point in kind of forcing that idea but i think it's still it did happen in all of the places in different, in different intensities and um, in different intimacies. But I would say that that to me was a complete change also in, in approaching a place, because I think it's fundamentally different from, a, from a traveling in this sense, well, from a touristic traveling, for sure. That's an easy one to, yeah. uh, you know, to differentiate from because it's, uh, we, we don't, uh, that, sense uh see the, the you know exploit the place in the in that kind of way for our own viewing pleasure our own relaxing pleasure or for all of the things that kind of tourism is built around um these these the, but then also i think it's fundamentally different from traveling in the sense of um uh, from you know there can be a more aware or research or educational travel. But I think that Flanora is something different because it is the, the, how the project unfolded and how we, how we do engage with the, the, the place and how we I have a hard time formulating it. But I think in the end, it is ongoing and it's creating in, in, a network of people that are in touch with each other and that exchange positions. And I think that in that way, the 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 place is not something like i always live with the idea that i would return there and that i have not that the project isn't finished Mm -hmm. which uh with that thought can also be a bit exhausting at times but Mm -hmm. um because you kind of add to your to your uh, to your perspectives to your mental landscape in a way as well with each Mm -hmm. place but that idea, I think for me, is much more intriguing than uh, any idea of tourism or any idea of educational traveling or anything like that. Because I feel like that it leaves the opportunity to engage beyond, you know, that, not, that non, none of these kind of projects or explorations are are actually with any attempt to exhaust the place, but mm-hmm. only an attempt to to return. Yeah.
1: And do you feel... Do you take the kind of um, mindset you have approaching these places? Do you take them with you in your more personal life or in your everyday life? Because maybe even now, because the the similarities with the corona situation of being restricted in a place, in a city, in an area of a city, um, is a bit similar as the um, starting point to make the magazine. Is it something you kind of... Um, have experienced now, but I'm more um, closer to home in a way.
2: I mean, the funny thing is that my, that that already started before, before this lockdown, but my, one of my main projects at the moment is um, a novel that I'm working on since last year and that I, that I have to finish until August. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: uh,
2: yeah. Um, which I, and which I probably, you know, won't uh finish by august but uh, sometime soon um so actually the this time was a this project uh, this novel it was something that that was uh created by uh, a set of uh, experiences in different places around um europe and that that I had over the last years which were based on the idea of tracing uh, stories of resistance and that's how the project started and so for me this time was really going through all the my notes and research and things and, uh, and, and, and and you know fragments that i had written and kind of go through a big kind of editing process almost also writing process but also kind of editing editing yourself which is um very different from editing a magazine or but uh so, in a way, I was constantly going through the material that i that i wrote and, and collected in other places so in a, um uh, I was in that headspace during this time so i can't i can't say that uh that i that i was able to engage mm-hmm. more with my like uh, neighborhood in that way, because I was very much living in that headspace. And I think for people that have been working on this that kind of larger writing projects that maybe understand that this mm.
3: <laughs> takes a lot of
2: your capacity. And then, um, so that was a very different time, maybe to sum that up, very different time from, from actually Flaneur projects, because Flaneur projects are always, at very much, like very social times as well, you know, in the sense of being together with others and working together with others and constantly being uh, around people and constantly being curious and constantly, um, you know, your mind is constantly activated in the sense of being um, perceptive. And I think this kind of pro- process I went through the last few weeks was much more introvert in, the, in a way, you know, than, mm-hmm. so, uh, yeah. sorry, that was very long. I hadn't I hadn't thought about, yeah, that before. Okay.
1: <laughs> it's okay. It's a good answer. <laughs> but yeah, I will also kind of leave you because we have been talking for a long time.
2: Oh, wow. Um, yeah. I hope I didn't talk too much.
1: No, no, no. You talk it happens,
2: much, you know, sometimes.
1: Perfect amount of time. No, I'm okay. re- really grateful. I found it a really refreshing conversation. had some... Discovered some new viewpoints, which I find very interesting. Um, yeah, thanks again for making the time uh, for it and answering also very thoughtfully on the questions. I also very much appreciate it. Um, yeah, and then again. I will wish you good luck with the writing for the book and also with the Flanet, because for Flanet, were you actually working on an issue right now as well?
2: Yeah, we were supposed to, to be in Paris uh, this month. To start the next issue, but it's been postponed to next year.
1: To next year. Okay.
2: But we're working on a podcast actually
1: at the moment. (laughs) Concurrency. (laughs) Don't make it, please. (laughs) (laughs) But
2: uh, yeah, we're working on some other things at the moment.
1: Okay.
2: Have
3: a nice day. Thank you
2: so much. Bye bye. You too. Bye. Bye.